I have a long, complicated personal history with discipline. Hearing the word conjures up for me memories of being grounded and having to tell my friends I couldn't play with them because I was grounded. And many of the kids on my block, for some reason, it didn't seem like they got grounded. There wasn't a whole lot of discipline that they had. I had to tell them, no, I couldn't play because I was grounded far more often than they had to tell me that they were grounded. I don't know, maybe that's a reflection on me or maybe that's a reflection on my parents. I'm going to hope it's a reflection on my parents because as we've read, loving parents discipline their kids. It also reminds me of sitting in Principal Sanbo's office trying to talk my way out of a suspension, which I successfully did. <laughs> Discipline also makes me think of the time that my math teacher called my dad. His office was across the street from the church. She called him in the middle of class. He showed up in the classroom, called me out of the classroom to have a little talk with me. It reminds me of the time I got 10 hours of community service at college or the disciplinary note I got at my first ministry job. And actually a suspension. Some of you are wondering if I'm fit to preach. <laughs> Discipline is something that has followed me all of my life. And it's something I've despised for most of my life. It wasn't until a few years ago in studying this very passage that I came to see the glory and the good of discipline. Yes, the glory and the good of discipline. Here's the big idea from this passage. Discipline is a means of grace given by God our Father above to help us run the race below. Hebrews is all about a race. It, over and over again, the book of Hebrews uses this word race, endure, press on. And so in this passage that we're looking at this morning, we see that discipline is a means of God's grace. It's undeserved favor given by our Father above who loves us to help us run the race below, to help us persevere, to help us get to the end. And to help us grasp this passage today, I want to break it down into three sections. Looking at what God has done in the first section, talking about what it means to endure what is sure to come in the middle section, and then how do we do this together in the last section. I hope this will help us to learn to love this passage this passage is kind of like hydrogen peroxide in an open wound. I don't know how you clean your open wounds. I personally use hydrogen peroxide. And recently, you can, maybe you can see it, I have this scar right here now, but a few weeks ago I was playing softball with the church softball team, and I dove for a ball and it cut up my entire arm. And so I had dirt stuck in my arm and I went home and I kind of scrubbed it out and cleaned it out and I dumped hydrogen peroxide over this sore and it bubbled up and it stung. Yet it healed this wound. And I never pay attention to hydrogen peroxide until I have a wound like that that needs to be healed. This passage is much like that. We never pay attention to it until something is wrong, until we are under discipline or until our life is out of whack. And then sometimes this passage comes across our plate and we see the healing power of God's discipline. That's what happened with me with this passage a few years ago. And I'll share a little bit more about that as we go. But here's how we're going to look at this passage. First one, I want to look at what God has done. The first four verses says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that was Hebrews chapter 11. Remember, we're given all these figures of faith, portraits of faith, as we spend our time this summer looking at those different figures and understanding their faith and trying to be motivated to live more for God by how they lived. But the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the, the, the people of old, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us, 
Ultimately, not looking at people of faith of old or even our church friends who have great faith, we are here for each other's example, but we are not the ultimate example. The ultimate example and one we are to look to is in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do you ever feel like sin is causing you to grow weary and faint-hearted in your inability to conquer it, in your inability to do away with it? It's causing you to grow weary or faint-hearted. And he's saying, look to Jesus because he persevered to the end. He ran the race. He is the founder and perfecter of your faith. Verse 4 in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the, point, to the point of shedding your blood. Who has? That's a question for you to answer. It's an easy one. Who has? Who shed his blood in our place on our behalf for our sin? Jesus. I heard the answer. Good job, church. Good job. We look, this passage is telling us that if we're ever going to understand God's discipline rightly, if we're ever going to be able to say that, that we rejoice in God's discipline, that we welcome God's discipline, we need to, first of all, look at what God has done and remember that he has punished Jesus in our place. Jesus bore the punishment, the weight of God's righteous wrath against our sin. He shed his blood as the ultimate sacrifice in our place so that we wouldn't have to shed our blood. The author of Hebrews here is saying, you haven't struggled against sin to the point of shedding blood. Jesus has. Jesus gave his blood for us. That's why we take communion every week to remind us that Jesus is the only righteous sacrifice for our sin. He shed his blood on our behalf. Look at how Isaiah chapter 53, 5 says it. He, this is a prophecy about Jesus, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Church, this passage is teaching us that God no longer punishes us for our sins if we're in Christ. There is not punishment for your sin. There is discipline, there is growth, but not punishment. God punished Jesus in our place. God punished Jesus so that we would not have to bear the weight of his righteous wrath. God has a righteous wrath against sin. This means a steady opposition against sin or a righteous indignation over what's wrong. What's wrong in the world? Yes, if we turn on the news and if we look at the world, we see all of these atrocities, all of these things that are wrong in the world. And God has a righteous indignation or a steady opposition to the injustices of the world. Praise God for that. He's a good God. He hates the things that we hate, that we see dysfunction and war and and um, abuse, and famine, and all of these things. God hates the injustices of the world. But he also hates the injustices in our own hearts. He has a steady opposition to what's broken and wrong in us. All of us are contributors to what is wrong in the world. But what this passage is telling us, and, and what we see here, is that God punished Jesus in our place, that he made what was wrong right in and through Jesus, that his steady opposition to wrong, that his righteous indignation to what is wrong in your life was dealt with in Jesus, his son. 
we can begin to accept God's good discipline now when we remember, when we know, when we look to Jesus, seeing what God has done, and we know that God isn't out to get me. He's not here to punish me. He's not here to give me a good whipping to, to, to teach me what it's like to, to have an um, annoying kid. There's a comparison to earthly fathers in here, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit, but I think some of us kick against God's discipline because we haven't experienced great discipline. I mean, human, punish, human discipline is often like punishment, right? I mean, one of my personal prayers is that in this passage, I would learn how to discipline my kids well and godly and consistently for their growth, not out of my annoyance. Many of you have been punished out of your father's or your mother's annoyance. Or maybe many of you have punished or said, tried to discipline your kids out of your own annoyance. They've gotten in the way, they've been loud, they've been in your space, they haven't done things the way that you wanted them to do things, and so you've lashed out in anger. That's not God. God has steady opposition to what is wrong, consistent character. He punished Jesus on the cross right there. It's prophesied in Isaiah 53.5, and we see it here in Hebrews that Jesus shed his blood. He dealt with God's righteous anger against sin so that we wouldn't have to. To properly understand discipline, we have to understand that there's a great difference between punishment and discipline, and God isn't one who punishes his children. He disciplines us for our good. The weight of God's steady opposition to injustices and injustices in the world in our life was placed on Jesus. So now all that we receive from God is good discipline. Church, let me ask you this question. Do you see God as one who punishes you for doing bad or as one who disciplines you for your own good? We're told right here, verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. This is speaking of earthly fathers. And those of you who had earthly fathers who disciplined and punished you for no reason at all, it seemed haphazard, it seemed unthought through, it seemed like anger and rage and wrath. I'm sorry. God is not that kind of father. This passage here is telling us that our earthly fathers disciplined us, and some of them did it well, and some of, it, some of them did it poorly. But look at to how this verse goes on. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. So church, you need to spend time wrestling with this question. How do you see God? Do you see God as one who punishes the bad that you do? Or one who disciplines you for your good and for your growth? If we're going to understand discipline, this is how we need to shift. This is what this passage is here to help us do. Only when we look to Jesus and see God properly, when we see what God has done for us through his son Jesus Christ, can we do the next part that this text calls us to which is to endure what is sure to come. It, it moves from looking to Jesus, telling us to look to Jesus, the one who shed his blood in our place, on our behalf, who received the righteous wrath, punishment of God, to move us from that into a place of discipline. And now it says, endure what is sure to come. Picking it up at verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And this quote here is from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. The author of Hebrews uses this Old Testament passage and he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom, father, whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Thank you, Dad and Mom, for disciplining me. It proves your love. And I thank you for that. It says, For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. God is disciplining us for good, to share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This text is saying if we are legitimate children of God, if you are genuinely sons and daughters of God, you can expect God's discipline to come. It's a sign that he loves you. It's a reminder that he cares for you. It's the way that he's working out his good in your life and for you. If you have no discipline in your life, if God isn't actively disciplining you, and we'll talk about what his discipline looks like in a minute, so you can understand how is he disciplining me and is he disciplining me. But this is a gauge for us to understand if we're genuinely followers of Jesus or not. Are you genuinely a disciple? Are you genu- genuinely, have you received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and repented of your sin? Ask the question, has he ever disciplined me? If God's not disciplining you, there is no guarantee that you have salvation. Now, we believe in the assurance of salvation in our church that once we are saved, we are always saved. God preserves us. He keeps us. He works out his will in our life for his good purposes, and and he disciplines us. So once we're saved, we're always saved. But there's markers, there's indicators of that salvation. One of those is discipline. We need to endure God's discipline knowing that it's going to come. It's sure to come. He disciplines the son and the daughter that he loves. And we ought to embrace his discipline. Here's where we see the difference between God's loving discipline and his justifiable wrath in this passage that we just read. It says that he disciplines us for our good, for our growth, because he loves us. To endure, discipl- to endure the discipline that is sure to come, we need to know that God is a loving and perfect father, that he's not vengefully looking to get us, but he's lovingly working to grow us. Some of you need to receive that and embrace that and accept that. Because you grew up with a father who disciplined you out of vengefulness, out of, out of anger. He was looking to catch you doing wrong to take his anger out on you. And again, I'm sorry for that. May God heal you of that poor example. That's not God, the good heavenly father. He's not vengefully looking to get us for doing wrong. He's not happy when he catches us doing wrong so that he can exert his power and discipline us or punish us. No, he's lovingly working to grow us as he disciplines us. He's lovingly helping us to understand what it means to live for him and what's right and what's wrong and how to abide in him and how to walk down a path of holiness and righteousness. I learned this a few years back myself when I was struggling with a certain sin which I was afraid would cause me to lose my job and bring shame on my church. I was a youth pastor and there was something in my life that I thought, oh man, if people find out about this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be disqualified, I'm going to be kicked out of my church. And so I started confessing this sin to some people. The, the Spirit was working on me and he was, he was convicting me of this sin and so I kind of tested the waters and I shared this sin with a few people and some of, pa- some of the pastors and mentors and counselors in my life said, 
you don't need to disclose that to the church. For one, you're bringing it into the light, but for two, this is God trying to discipline you. Receive it and accept it. Somebody pointed me to Hebrews chapter 12. This is when I begin to love the discipline of the Lord. I begin to meditate on Hebrews chapter 12 and realize my fear was that my sin was going to be exposed publicly and I would be shamed. And pastors and mentors in my life said, God's heart isn't to shame you, Andrew. It's to grow you. So confess your sin. Walk in the light. Have a lifestyle of repentance and receive the heavy discipline of the Lord. So here's what that may look like in this season. Here's some things that maybe you shouldn't do in this season. Here's some things that you can continue to do in this season as we see it. But don't feel like God's looking to get you and to bring shame on you. He loves you. You're his son. This is him disciplining you. What a gift. What a gift. That's how I learned this passage and the lesson of this passage. I think in order to, for us to better understand discipline, too, I want to just pause for a minute in here and kind of do a little sidebar on discipline. What is it? How does it come about? What does it look like in our lives? First question is, how does discipline come about? I think there's three primary ways. One is internal conviction. This is how it happened for me. I had this internal conviction about this sin. And because I had that internal conviction, I went to some people that I trusted and confessed my sin. And God began to discipline me and grow me through that sin. Sometimes it's this internal conviction. Other times it's external confrontation. People who know you, people who love you, people who care about you will actually confront the sin that they see in your life. This happened with David. David, the man after God's own heart who slept with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and then killed Uriah, his warrior. He was living in sin and Nathan, his best friend, called him out and he shared with him this story about this man living in sin and David said, oh, that's awful. That's an awful person. And David said, you are that man, David. External confrontation from somebody who loved him, who trusted him. Sometimes God discipline in our life comes about through trusted sources, through the church family who knows us, who can call it out and say, you're acting like a fool. You're off your rocker. You need to get in line with God and who he is. And other times, it's unexpected exposure. Sometimes we are caught doing wrong. And that may bring shame upon us for a season. But ultimately, it's God's gracious gift to expose a secret sin if it's derailing our spiritual life. I have a handful of friends who have been caught underneath God's discipline in an unexpected way. And you know what? Those who are genuinely walking with the Lord and who understand His discipline... After, after some time and after the shame of that sin kind of wears off, they say, I'm so glad that God caught me. I'm so glad that it was exposed. Even though in the time it was embarrassing or hurtful, I was going to continue on in my life of sin and then God found me out and he made it known and I'm a different person today because God disciplined me. This is how discipline comes about. The next one, what does discipline look like? And we could do a longer list. This isn't an exhaustive list, but it's a few areas that I want to touch on. Discipline, and there's biblical examples for all these. Discipline comes from natural consequences of sin. I mean, there's certain sin that just has natural consequences, right? I don't think I need to go into this one a ton, and sometimes we have to just live with the consequences of our sin. And that's a constant reminder to us that doing life God's way rather than doing life our way is better, and God is continually disciplining us as we live with the natural consequences from our sin. A heavy heart and a guilty conscience. 
This was, this was mine a few years back when I told you that I was in, a, in the midst of a sin struggle that I was afraid would expose me and shame me. And I just had a heavy heart and a guilty conscience. This is partially what happened to King David. If you read Psalm 32, he says that when I stayed quiet, when I kept my sin inside, when I hid from God and others, it, it was heavy upon my soul. It's like my bones were breaking within me. I was groaning inside. And so sometimes God's discipline starts to work in our lives when we have a heavy heart and a guilty conscience over our sin. Sometimes it's just frustrated plans. Nothing seems to ever work out the way that you've planned it, the way that you want it to go. And this could be God disciplining you, saying, well, that's because I don't want you to go that way. That plan isn't my plan for you, and so he frustrates the plans. This happened with the Apostle Paul, kind of frustrated plans, closed doors, you can put those together. The Apostle Paul, in his missionary journeys, he wanted to go to Malta, and the Spirit closed the door. It's the discipline of the, of the Lord moving Paul to where God wanted Paul to go. Sometimes his discipline looks like just frustrating our plans or closing doors or redirecting us. Maybe in our flesh we want to go this way. But God, in his loving discipline, he redirects us that way. It could be the loss of a blessing. This happened to Moses. He missed out on going into the promised land because he didn't obey God when he struck the rock for water. It happened to David. He wasn't able to build the temple of the Lord in the promised land because of his sin. He was disciplined by God. It happened to Solomon. He lost the kingdom, the massive kingdom that God had blessed him with. He lost that blessing. What about sickness, injury, and even death? Sometimes. I don't want you to hear that any sickness or injury or death is directly a hand of the Lord trying to discipline you or whoever's struggling with it, but sometimes it is. Oftentimes it is. And it's not a bad thing. We welcome it because oftentimes, if you've talked to somebody with genuine faith who's walked through sickness or injury or death, they will tell you that the Lord used that in their life to realign their heart for him. When I was in college, I had an idol of baseball. I still do. I have to constantly check my heart and make sure that I'm not checking fantasy baseball too often and, and baseball scores too often. I love baseball. There's my confession. And in college, I, I put baseball before God. God had clearly called me to follow him and to go into ministry, but I was still pursuing baseball. I was putting, pursuing ministry on the back burner. And I was at my, my first year at Crown College, and we were down in Florida for spring training, and I was excited to be able to join the team and get playing time. Five games into the season, fifth game down in Florida, I threw my arm out, tore the labrum in my shoulder. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and the team prayed that God would heal my arm. I wanted to play baseball so bad, and I was convinced. I was convinced that my area of ministry in that season was on the baseball team. God took my arm away. And directly as a result of that, I got involved in my last church, and I ended up being there for seven years. Five as youth pastor, two as associate pastor, and that led to the church planting journey that was City Vision, led to this church marriage, which has been an incredible thing. God disciplined me through an injury that my idol would be taken away and then I would put him first. What about natural disasters? That's a, that's a hard one to think about and a hard pill to swallow, but we see that in the scriptures. That when Israel, God's people, weren't walking with him, when they weren't obeying him, he would bring famine on their land. My grandfather-in-law, Brittany's grandpa, Gail was a farmer in Wyoming for 
a period of time. And he shares with us the story that, that he knew that he was supposed to give up the farm and move back to the Twin Cities to attend Bible school. He knew that that's what he was supposed to do, but he wasn't obeying it. God brought a hailstorm on his farm. Only his farm, none of the surrounding farms had a hailstorm. His farm had a hailstorm. He made no money. In his story, as he talks it through, he says, this was God's discipline of me to get me to give up my idol and to trust him and move back and go to Bible school like I knew that he had asked me to do. It's kind of like Jonah, right? We see this in the story of Jonah. Go to Nineveh. I don't want to go to Nineveh. He runs the other way. The storm comes. God gets his will done anyway. So yes, God's discipline can look like that. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, they're struck down dead for lying to the Lord. The Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11.30, it says that many of them are sick because of unresolved sin. God actually brought his discipline upon them in sickness because of their sin to get their eyes open, for them to become aware what about Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Paul has this thorn in the flesh, and we don't know what that is. It's something that he's afflicted by, and he says that I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed that God would take it from me, but he saw it better for me to have this as a disciplinary measure that I would trust him in my weakness. Lack of peace, this is another way that we see God's discipline. We could add more things. We could talk about these all day long. That's not the point. It's just the point to say, this is how God may be disciplining you. I don't know how he's disciplining you here now in this season of your life. But if you're a loved son or daughter, he's disciplining you some way or another. This can be a hard pill to swallow, but we must remember that Hebrews 11, 12, 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline isn't exciting. I mean, who wants to be disciplined? My kids surely don't want to be disciplined, man. They try and get out of that any way they can. I, wanted to, I didn't ever want to be disciplined. That's why I sat in Principal Sanbo's office and talked my way out of a suspension because I wanted to go make trouble in school. Discipline for the moment doesn't seem pleasant, but it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have sat underneath it, who have embraced it, who have accepted it, who have endured what is sure to come. How do we often respond to discipline? I think there's some ways that we respond poorly to discipline. Many of us, all of us, often do this. Some of them are touched on here in the passage. Verse 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. How many of you regard God's discipline lightly? You kind of grin and bear it. You kind of take a Stoics approach to it. You minimize the problems. You minimize his discipline, thinking I'm just going to get through this season to the better season, and you don't welcome it. You don't question it accept what God's trying to do in your life through it, you just shrug it off and say, well, someday things are going to get better, so I'm just going to ignore the bad right now and move on to the next. Or maybe some of you may grow weary. Verse 5 again says, nor be weary when reproved by him. Do you allow God's discipline to get the best of you? Do you crumble under it? Do you, do you break under it? Do you just kind of sit and wallow in it? We're told here not to do that. Or do you stiffen your neck to God's discipline? Proverbs 29.1 says, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. God, would you keep us from that? He who is often reproved or disciplined 
by the Lord, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. God, would you soften our hearts to receive your discipline? Or do you compare to others' life and circumstances and complain about your own? Maybe the circumstances that you're in in your life are because God's trying to discipline you for your own good, and yet you're looking at other people's lives saying, well, this isn't fair. Why do I have to carry this burden? They don't have to carry a burden like that, and you're whining and complaining or throwing a pity party or blame-shifting. These circumstances in my, in my life are this way because so-and-so did this or because so-and-so did that. This is how we often respond to discipline. Is it not, church? I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of it often. Here's how we should respond to discipline. We're told in this text. Number one, endure. Look at verse seven. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. When God disciplines us, we endure the discipline. We welcome the discipline. We embrace the discipline and endure it because it's a sign and a proof that God loves us and he's treating us as loved sons and daughters and that he actually cares about us. It's when he lets us run and do whatever we want and there's no correction, no discipline that we have to question whether or not we're sons or daughters. But when he's bringing us back, when he's disciplining us, when he's honing us in, it's a sign that he loves us and that he's for us. And then the second way we respond is to rejoice. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 tells us this. It says, rejoice in trials of various kinds. Because God is using it to work his plan out in your life. To conform you to his image. Same with 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. And Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. The scriptures tell us that when we are disciplined, that when we come underneath trials of various kinds, and trials are certainly a way that God disciplines us, that we are to embrace it, that we're to endure it, that we're to rejoice in it. Are you kidding me? The world doesn't do that. I've spent an astronomical amount of money on car repairs in the last four months. It happened this week. Both of my cars were in the shop at the same time. Two weeks ago, one of our cars was in the shop. Brittany came to pick me up, and we were transporting the kids into the other car. As she was pulling in with the one working car, that car went haywire. We got the car that was fixed, left the car that went haywire there. That car got fixed. That was two weeks ago. This week, one of our cars broke down. It was in the shop. The other car was working. She called me on, I think it was Wednesday morning, maybe it was Thursday, and she said, hey, can you come pick me up on the side of the road? The car is overheating. I have Oakley. So I hopped in the church van. Thanks for having a van church and letting your pastor use it. Hopped in the church van because we didn't have another vehicle. Drove to pick her up. And, and we had to wrestle with this this week. Do we rejoice in this circumstance? Clearly God's trying to discipline us. He's trying to remind us of his love. And, and both of us are convinced that he wants us to know that we ought to trust in him, not our cars. Amen. Thank you, God. He tells us to rejoice in trials of various kinds and our car trial may not be on the same par as persecuted Christians around the world. And so I even feel a little bit bad thinking about that. But it is a trial in our life that I believe God brought for our good and for our growth. And so church, the question is, will you endure and rejoice in God's discipline? Trusting it as a means of his grace helping you to run the race. Remember, Proverbs 21.9, which says, He who is often reproved or corrected or disciplined, yet stiffens his neck, is suddenly broken beyond repair. So will you endure discipline? Will you welcome it? Will you accept it? Will you embrace it? Will you rejoice in it as a sign that God loves you, as a sign that God wants what 
is best for you as a sign that God is trying to grow you into his image and likeness. Don't stiffen your neck when God disciplines you. Don't complain. Don't run from it. Don't, don't try and minimize it, but embrace it as a sign that your Father loves you. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the Son that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And how do we do this, church? We do it together. That's what verses 12 through 17 show us. It's, this is a passage written to a church community or a sermon given within a church community. He goes on to say, Therefore, lift your droopy hands and strengthen your weak knees. This is a body metaphor given to the body of Christ. Some of us have droopy hands. I don't even know what that means, but some of us have droopy hands. Some of us need to strengthen our weak knees. We're weak at the knees. We can't bear the pressure and the weight of the world. He says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. A body analogy given to the body of Christ, all of us in a different place, some of us with droopy hands, some of us with weak knees, some of us with joints that are about to be put out of place, some of us dealing with sexual immorality, some of us dealing with roots of bitterness. And he's saying together, listen to what he goes on to say here, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. So in this body, there's people who are broken and who are in danger of being put out of joint, people who are struggling in various ways. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which out no one will see the Lord. And listen to this command, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to, the, to obtain the grace of God. This is done together. We do this in a community. We receive God's good discipline in a community, in a body of believers where we're able to remind one another of the truth, where we're able to point out one another's limps and we're able to say, maybe that limp is there because of this and I want to remind you that God loves you enough to give you a limp. Maybe that issue is in your life because of this and how can I pray through that with you and care, care about you through this season? Are you sure that your heart isn't growing bitter and cold because of this? How can, I, how can I help warm your heart with the truth of the gospel? Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Grace is undeserved favor. God's discipline is a grace for us. It's undeserved favor where he is trying to cause us and help us to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. And it's our job, church, to see to it that none among us fail to obtain the grace of God. Isn't that incredible? It's not my job as your pastor to see to it that you don't fail to obtain the grace of God. It's our job for one another. I need you to see that I don't fail to obtain the undeserved favor of God. I need you to be in one another's lives making sure that your friends, your family, your, your church members aren't failing to obtain the grace of God. That as God's discipline comes, that we're embracing it, that we're encouraging one another to rejoice in all circumstances, in all trials, because God is using that to grow us into his image and likeness. This is our call, church, to obtain the grace of God together. It's one of the reasons why we gather and proclaim the gospel day in and day out, to remind us that God is good and he wants our best. This is why we scatter into communities. This is why we do life together so that we would see to it that none of us fail to obtain his grace. This is why we take communion every week. 
to remind us that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, that Jesus is the ultimate grace of God given to us. And so we're going to transition now to responding to who God is and what he's done, to remembering his grace in our lives, to seeing that none of us fail to obtain his grace. His grace. It's not about what you've done or how you do it. It's about what Jesus has done and that he has done it. So I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come up. There's communion stations in the front, one in the back, and just visit it as you feel ready as a reminder and sign that God's grace is for you. And that's seen in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life, lived a perfect life, the life that you couldn't, died a sacrificial death, the one that we should have. So if you've placed your faith in him, the elements are there for you. If you haven't, I would love to meet with you today and talk about that. If you've never done this, you can do it here and now. You can place your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ and receive the elements. And again, I would love to talk with you and encourage you in your newfound faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are an active God. You're not distant. You're not removed. You're not disengaged. Sometimes your engagement with us looks like discipline. I pray that you would help us to receive that as a good thing, that we would grow in light of it. God, we thank you that you don't punish us. If we're in Christ, all of your discipline in our lives is a favor. It's a grace given to us for our good and for our growth. So I pray that you would reveal to each one of us the things that we need to be revealed. I pray that each one of us would respond in the ways that would be good and right for us to respond. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.